Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, the founder of The Naked Voice. And I am here to welcome you to our online community, which is an opportunity for us to evolve and to inquire, to deepen and inspire our understanding of the nature of compassion and compassionate action and its transformative impact in the world. I'm particularly interested in exploring this theme with the lives and hearts and minds and teachings of poets, artists, writers, musicians and philosophers, teachers and social entrepreneurs and activists. And today it is my great privilege to welcome Mark Matusek from New York City, who is a prolific writer and a great friend. So big welcome to you, Mark. Thank you, Chloe. It's so good to talk to you. (laughs) It's great, great to talk with you too. So Mark, I just want to ask you, first of all, what is compassion? What is your understanding of compassion? My understanding of compassion is that it is a feeling with uh, another uh, without being swamped by that person's feelings so that we're not able to take positive action. Now, the problem with a lot of people is that they confuse uh, empathy with compassion. And uh, empathy can lead to burnout because we're, in, we're internalizing the other person's feelings. And it, it, it can be a wonderful sympathetic experience to, to do that, to feel that kind of empathy, but it can lead to what they call empathic distress, whereas compassion uh, allows us to uh, feel with the other in a way more deeply because we're not getting in the way and personalizing it, and it doesn't lead to burnout. It leads to uh, increased energy to help and to do good. So I think compassion really is uh, what we need now, not not the kind of uh, bleeding heart approach to to uh, activism that this just has has put so many wonderful activists uh, out of business because they, they they simply couldn't function that way anymore right so it's actually really important for us to understand what is it that enables a compassionate act or the embodiment of compassion in such a way as it doesn't what do you think it is about people that think they're being compassionate, perhaps, or their best interest is to be compassionate? What gets in the way? What is it that generates that, that burnout, do you think? Generally, it's that people haven't done the work themselves uh, and their shadow can get in the way of helping other people because they have unmet needs. They have uh, unacknowledged desires or fears or angers that can get in the way. It becomes sort of like a, a, a spider web. It catches the painful things in it because it's, uh, it's coming from the individual's 
pain themselves. So when we don't clear ourselves enough to let in the other person's information and, and that other person's condition, we can't do that if we haven't done our own work. And, and a lot of activists are all about, like the word says, you know, it's, it's all about activity and getting out there and doing, and that's a fantastic energy, but not at the expense of doing the, the inner uh, inquiry that frees us to be compassionate, to put compassion into action uh, w- without, without egotism uh, and without too much self-reference, too much self-inflection. You know, I've known a lot of activists who were who meant well, but there was a self-righteousness there that came from their own anger issues that they hadn't dealt with. And that's not what we need. You know, anger leads to anger, as the Buddha said, and uh, that, that's really counterproductive when it comes to you know, improving the world. Absolutely. So it's very interesting how very often I'm aware in my work with sound and the voice that so many people when they're using their voice, for example, is they have been trained or conditioned to impress rather than to express. And that desire to impress seems to come go back a long way, right back into the childhood narratives of having to be somebody. What are you going to do when you grow up? All that kind of requirement to impress, to compete, to succeed, etc., 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 which is, as you say, is all building the egoic mind, but very much often at the expense of the intuitive mind. Yeah, very much. I mean, that impress, it, impressing impulse comes from the idea that we need to earn our existence somehow. We need to earn uh, other people's love. We have to justify our being here. It's coming from a deficit mentality it's coming from that sort of original sin idea that we have to you know we have to redeem ourselves somehow and that energy is very different uh, from bringing what is profound and authentic within us out into the world because the other is outer it's other directed it's saying it's sort of i'm dancing as fast as i can what do i have to do to make you love me you know what do i have to do to to have value in your eyes and in the eyes of the world. That's an orphan mentality. That's a hungry ghost kind of mentality. And and it doesn't uh, empower us. It doesn't bring what's best and, and truest in us out. And it, there's, a, there's always pain in it. There's ne- it's never enough. Because when we impress one person, there are so many people left <laughs> that, that, that remain unimpressed. And the way you see that is if you're ever performing or, or speaking in front of an audience, a lot of people in the whole room may be clapping. If there's one person who's not clapping, that's what that ego mind uh, obsesses on, is why didn't they like me? So damn the other 300 people who liked you, if there were a handful who didn't, that's what catches us. And that's how we stay hungry, we stay struggling and striving. And it just creates so much stress, don't you think? Oh, my God, absolutely. And it's fascinating that, isn't it? You know, that obsession with what went wrong with rather than what went right, what really worked. You know, that obsession with what people think of you at all. That, that anxiety always about what others are thinking of you, and which creates this kind of perpetual state of separateness, essentially, isn't it? That's really what it comes down to, is this kind of terror of union. And this idea of, I must remain distinct from others. I must remain. And of course, it creates a false distinction, a false separateness, 
which as you, as you rightly say, creates huge pain and sort of inauthenticity in the creation of just ordinary, compassionate, loving, human friendship and so on. It does. Well, because impressing is always about us, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I'm interested in, in, for you as a performer, you know, what is that line between impressing and entertaining? There's a, a kind of symbiosis, it seems to me, between a performer and an audience where the performer is, is feeding off of and rea- responding to the, the desire and the enthusiasm of the audience. And yet, obviously, you need to stay in yourself. You know, you're not just uh, giving them whatever they want. So for you, do you ever catch yourself on stage getting into that over-performative or needing to impress kind of state of mind? That's a very important question, and it certainly comes up a lot in my work and so on. But talking for myself, I would say because I was brought up in the early years, my childhood years, to believe that, you know, you shouldn't do too well. It was actually more the other way. My dad was a priest, so it was more that Christian, you know, don't be seen to be doing too well. It was almost like the flip side of you better do well or else, you know. Certainly I was brought up with the idea that music uh, was all about, was only about entertainment or religious ceremony. So given the choice, I was more drawn to the, the religious ceremony, the sacred ceremony. So what happened was rather than standing out, you know, that whole idea of we don't want you to be seen to stand right. out, I actually went hell for leather before uh, choral singing. And that way I could experience the glory and the beauty of polyphonic sound, for example, and the whole Western sacred history of sacred music, for example, as a choral singer, not as a soloist. And that gave me immense joy, uh, immense joy, uh, because I didn't have to be seen, you know, as sort of as separate from. And what I started to learn was the choral field is such a profound way of sharing sound and sharing beauty and sharing joy and sharing sacred knowledge, if you like. And I never had any concept. I'm, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert, contrary to how it may seem. <laughs> and, uh, although I know Peter Gabriel said the same thing. It wasn't really until uh, I started to investigate the nature of sound at a much deeper level that I started to realize its power to dissolve separateness. And in that discovery, I started to hear sound and just feel this sort of involuntary desire just to express it out of pure gratitude. When I came back from India, for example, having had a very powerful transformative experience out there, just exploring the uh, spiritual philosophy of music, and along with that, meeting invite non-separate teachers and so on. And that just blew my mind. I mean, literally blew my mind. And so I came back from India in this very blissful state, and I started to realize, my God, what have we done mm. to music in the West? You know, we have 
basically it's, it's a global phenomenon, of course, this idea that music is only about entertainment. You've got to impress the people out there. There has to be a separate audience. You know, you have to be the solo person on the stage producing the goods, etc., etc., etc. I was so connected with everything that I started realizing, I wonder if there's another way in which I can share this new experience of non-separateness through sound without it needing to be an entertainment activity or a choral activity. So that's really when I thought there must be a training out there for this and I couldn't find one. So I just opened up the question and away we went with the naked voice because I started to just put up a notice in our local community hall saying, does anybody want to find their voice? Because I started realizing, my God, our entertainment industry is literally separating people from their true nature. And so what that did was I started realizing it looks like I am required to sing solo because there's music coming out of me now that I just feel, I'm just so enjoying sharing. Uh, But at the same time, I don't want to do it in the old entertainment framework. So I started creating contexts in which people could listen together and make sound together. And people could rise up out of that field of listening and then return back into the field. And no one was any more important than anybody else. You know, everyone, every voice was welcome. And it looks like there's a chance that we can, we can develop this framework thanks to the internet on quite a big scale. In other words, creating a global field of listening, a global field of sounding, where people actually are welcome to share their authentic voice, not the voice that they were told to present themselves with in the interview. Right, uh, right. Or on the stage. How has that been for you? I'm aware I'm looking at this incredible list of workshops and courses and context that you provide for people in retreat, residentially, online, and so on. I mean, it's absolutely inspiring. And I would just love you to share, and I would love to hear more about how this happened, how this understanding, and what part writing and memoir and poetry and spiritual practice, and how all these things came together for you. Yeah, for me it was it was very organic. Uh, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of violence and pain uh, and isolation, and so I turned to writing at a very young age uh, as a way of making sense of my experience and asking myself questions. And when I was seven, eight years old, I was doing self inquiry in a notebook. Uh, and when I wasn't doing it in my notebook, I was doing it in front of the mirror. I was asking myself, "Who are you?" So uh, that that started as a kid. So journaling and, and writing became a survival tool for me, as, as much as a as much as much as a path of of, of of awakening. And then things happened. My sister committed suicide. I was diagnosed with a near fatal disease, uh, and I left my career in New York and went to India. And I was a Dharma bum basically for ten years. Uh, thinking that the the axe was going to fall and I was going to die. And they were scary years, but they were also the most exhilarating and meaningful years of my life. Uh, And I ended up 
surviving for treatments and, and getting through that. But what it gave me was my real work. And my real work was not only the exploration of my story through memoir, which I started to write in, in, the, in the 90s. I published a, a memoir in 95 and a memoir in 2000. But then I wanted to help people benefit in some way from the 30 years of blood, sweat, and tears I'd gone through uh, figuring out how to use writing uh, as, a, as a tool for personal freedom uh, and not just uh, use memoir as, a, as a, an opportunity to, you know, to become self-absorbed and, and, and write about yourself. And a good friend of mine helped me a lot. When I was writing my first memoir, I was worried about this. Uh, and she said, you have to remember one thing. She said, when people read your story, they're not reading about you. They're reading about themselves. And when she said that for me, it, was, it, it blew the whole thing open. I realized I wasn't writing my story just. I was writing one iteration of the human story. And that if I could reveal touch themes and experiences that, that, that were common to other people, it didn't need to just be about me. And so that freed me a lot. Then cut to about 10 years ago, somebody asked me to teach a class. And I said, well, I really don't teach. I'm a writer. Uh, and he said, well, you know, give it a try. And I found, Chloe, that I absolutely loved it. And it was something, it was there all the time. I never thought about doing it. But once I started, it just had a life of its own. And the method that I teach, Writing to Awaken, really came directly out of my, my experience um, organically without any previous planning. And what it came down to really is that uh, when you tell the truth about your experience, your story changes. And then when your story changes, your life is transformed. That really became the nugget of what I've learned as a writer and what I teach uh, and you know, work with students uh, about. And what it is is realizing that you are the storyteller, not the story. And when you get that, it's a, just a, it's a big aha. It's a huge epiphany when you see that this narrative mind of yours is working all the time over time on its own uh, and uh, you're believing the narrative. Uh, and then you get, oh, no, I'm not that. I'm not that uh, that narrative. I'm the observing witness who can create new stories, who can use his imagination to move you know forward in, in unexpected ways, and also to free oneself of the of the sense of self, of that heavy, oppressive, egoic sense of self. So the writing has become a a, a transformative spiritual tool. I really think it's as powerful as meditation and, and yoga in its own way. I see, I see the changes in people's lives, and it happens very quickly, surprisingly fast. I love that, what you're saying about the, the witnessing, observing mind, uh, the storyteller distinguishing that as from the story itself. Because then that gives the, you know, the egoic mind, it gives the personality, the distinct, unique personality or the unique voice of the individual the opportunity to entirely enjoy their humanity, being alive, being a human being, at the same time as, as realizing that that's an ever-changing vehicle that you don't have to sort of get attached to in the same way. And that's presumably exactly the witnessing right. mind assists that process. Yeah, it's, 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 it's exactly right. And it's the opposite of what most folks think they think oh well, if i give up my ego or if i move at least seep through my my ego my life is going to lose meaning i'm going to lose a sense of self i'm going to lose uh you know a, a feeling of, of, of engagement and, and and passion and creativity and the opposite is true uh, 
Uh, when you detach from the narrative and you realize how free you are and how much power uh, of the imagination there is in there, when you're no longer identified with the story. Uh, it's just too scary. It's actually impossible if you're living it and believing you are it to look at it. So the first thing we do is step back and realize that we're not that. Uh, and then we consider what are these thoughts what, that we're um, we uh, shaping ourselves around. We're, it turns out that we're, we're something called homo narens. We're the storytelling ape. That's what we do. I mean, the, the brain evolved to tell stories as a survival tool to make sense of this uh, completely mysterious, uncontrollable world. We create story, and that's fine. The problem is that we, we forget that we're, we're doing it, and we, we take our stories for the truth, and then life just gets smaller and smaller. Right. I got it. I got it. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. And that I can, I'm just even hearing you describe that makes me realize how utterly liberating that must be for people and for all and everyone. You know, not just like people who are, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a writer kind of thing. It's actually something that is the birthright of every individual. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and this, this writing practice I do is not about being a writer per se. I mean, if you can, okay. if you can write, if you can write an email, I would say you can do this work. It's about asking questions, having courage, taking risks, uh, and telling the untold story, you know, getting underneath the authorized version of things, uh, that, that, that's running you. It's very often stuff that we, you know, we keep in, in the shadow. And as the more we, the more you do it, the more creative you become. That's, that's the truth is because you step into an unknown place and you know, and that's where creative work comes from. It comes from the unknown. It doesn't come from, from mastery and control and authority and you know, sort of staying in our comfort zones. It comes from stepping out of, of the comfort zone. And that's really what liberation, psychological and spiritual liberation is about too. You know, we're stepping outside the comfort zone of the self, this container, this, this self idea into the unknown and it's 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 a little it can feel scary and it can feel like oh gosh i'm going to lose everything but in fact you gain everything you get you get so much so much freer and happier and more and and braver really and willing to do things that you had, had maybe hadn't considered before because they didn't fit into your idea of yourself and what kind of so this is there are two things i want to ask you about i want to ask you about silence what part silence plays within the process because I've just started noticing with sound work and so on is that with the vocal practice is that absolutely I mean I absolutely resonate with everything you're saying and in a sense we're like the sort of the fullness element of the meditation that is just all about silence and you go on a retreat and you're just it's all about silence and there's nothing else going on but silence and that can have its own extraordinary depth and value of course but if you actually take your own wild neurotic crazed eccentric imaginative persona along with you and decide to make friends with it and engage with it with this whole new self-observing awareness i've noticed that when i when people come along and they start expressing their voice and they start getting really excited about hearing it and also realizing that it's just an ever ever changing river of sound that uh, they don't have to get attached to just enjoy it in the moment for what it is i've started inviting people particularly newcomers to the work 
I say that something like, we have an exercise called One Breath, One Voice, where you just take a breath and you just sound out, you know, just, ah, you know, you just sound out non-verbally. Now, that would be terrifying, perhaps, to many people who would be coming along who still are deluged by their own traumatic stories and so on. But what I've started doing is suggesting that people practice this, but actually give their main attention to the quality of silence the voice leaves behind. And I'm just wondering what part silence might play. What I've noticed is that by simply asking that question of a vocalist, the self-consciousness, the attachment to the sound and to the production and to how impressive it's going to be or whatever, the self-consciousness that goes with all of that and the pain of that disappears because they're more concerned and fascinated by what quality of silence their sound is going to leave behind. I wonder if there's some kind of equivalent uh, process that goes on in the writing. That's so beautifully said. I mean, it makes complete sense. And when we, when we connect to the ground, which is what the silence is, then this little, this little puppet, this little clown self uh, <laughs> becomes a lot less important. We can see what it is and it doesn't scare us. And nor does it, you know, nor does it limit us. Right. Something that I do, I do with a, in a course I teach called Awakening Genius. The first lesson is uh, is beyond words, uh, and I ask people to uh, to sit in contemplation with common things in their lives uh, and notice. And so it's a bare attention uh, exercise. Uh, and then the following week, they start to write about what what they were noticing. But it does start with silence, and I say I say it seems like an odd lesson in a writing course to to, to not write anything. But people get a lot out of it, and and for folks who don't have the opportunity to just quiet down and stop, that alone is so therapeutic and so helpful. Uh, and anything that that's about creativity, as I was saying, really has to come out of that awareness of the ground. Uh, and silence. Uh, so connecting to that is a reflective and meditative, contemplative process. And writing itself is a contemplative process. So if you're sitting with your journal uh, and you're going into deep feeling and thought, you will pause. And when you pause, that's where the insights come out. And that's where the voice, that small, still voice within that's guiding the writing uh, can be heard. It's in that silence. And that's why it's so lovely when we're doing deep, work, introspective work with writing to, 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 um, to find a sanctuary, find a refuge for ourselves where we can hear ourselves feel and hear ourselves think and, and, and let that, that, that guidance come through us. That's, that's where all meaningful writing comes from, is from that guidance. And that guidance, of course, comes out of silence. I love that. I absolutely love that. I just want to come on one of your courses. I'm going to really make oh, sure. you Um, So tell me, uh, I love the fact that you use the word contemplative. In our world, in in the work with the Naked Voice, we often find ourselves using contemplative, creative, and compassionate as if they're sort of interconnected realities, uh, interconnected perspectives on the same thing. And I was wondering where contemplative meets compassionate, how do they interact or how do they dance together uh, in the writing process? You know, I think of contemplative and compassionate as almost synonymous mm-hmm. because compassion is feeling with uh, another 
and in contemplation, we meet the self. We meet that part of ourselves that's larger than the you know, larger than the personality. And it's that part of the self that's larger than the personality that actually is compassion. That that's that is what is that's what compassion is, is that larger self connecting or or re- realizing its connection to the larger self of all beings. So I think contemplation is a path to compassion. And in a way, in my experience, the, the two the two experiences feel very much the same. When I'm in contemplation, I, my heart is open. Right. And, and it's not just a, it's not just a, you know, a mental exercise. It's, much, it's actually much more a, a heart exercise and coming out, of, coming out of, of silence and intuition. So to me, Chloe, they're, they're very close together. They're very closely connected. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, I had an image as you were just sharing that of a dot in the middle of a circle. So that the dot, if you like, is the absolute center point of attention that arises in contemplative uh, listening, contemplative writing. It's that absolute source. It's the uh, zero-point consciousness or something, zero-point fields that the quantum physicist might describe, perhaps. And then compassion is the field that is generated uh, around oneself within and beyond oneself that then may have uh, an outer expression or may want to probably inevitably will just naturally want to express itself out in the form of action uh, around itself beautiful yes that's exactly how i see it Aha, aha, I love that. I absolutely love that. And in a sense, the creative practice is almost like the, it's like the juice in between the interior and the exterior expression of the same thing. The creative energy is what's activated, ignited through this attention of the soul to come home to itself, I suppose, isn't it? It's like we've just... Exactly, yeah. yeah when the chips are down, we just have to come home to ourselves. I actually think that true creativity dissolves separation. Lovely. That that's what it is. Yeah. And, and that is what defines art. When creativity is present, uh, we are, we, are, we become more, we, aware, we become aware of our connection to, to, to humanity, to other people, and to being itself. That, that to me is what happens when I look at a piece of art. It's, it's, right. it's transcendent, literally transcendent. And that doesn't mean airy fairy. Uh, it just means that it's speaking in a higher, a different register than than or so-called ordinary life. Uh, and in that register, we can see and hear and feel more, and that's what creativity does for us. Absolutely lovely, and what a gift! What a blessing! I mean, it's such a privilege to even be in this conversation, isn't it? That we can be sitting here at this time on Earth when so much craziness is going on and such turmoil everywhere. And it's for that reason that I feel these conversations are just crucial, in fact, for all of us, you know, wherever we are, whatever situation we are in, to know that we can pick up a pencil or a pen or we can open our mouths and make a sound, even if it's just to cry out to do this skillfully, to, to, to know and to, to know that we all have access and the potential for the skills 
for this quality of awareness that really has initially a, a profoundly therapeutic effect as we make this journey back to ourselves from social conditioning, the limitations of our social conditioning, back home to our true uh, self. You know, that I love that um, poem, Oh Lord, my boat is so small, how can this great love be inside me? You know, that, that kind of idea of, of understanding that I am this, as Krishnamurti used to talk about the human body as a limited envelope, the human envelope. Within the immensity. Right. Yes. Yes. You just talked about the transcendent in art and when creativity is really honed to that point of such concentration and devotion and commitment that it becomes transcendent art. So I'm aware that in this conversation we're we're in the field of art as a therapeutic practice and then art as it perhaps shifts from that therapeutic into the transcendent. How does that play itself out in your work, either personally or within your groups or however you want to respond to that question? You know, everything I do is informed by my own spiritual education experience uh, and awareness. So I see the therapeutic as a stage toward uh, the transcendent. Right. I see it happen all the time. For example, I'll give uh, Alaska, you know, a student to write about a, a challenging subject, and he or she will send me something. And in the beginning, it's uncertain. Uh, I don't know anything about this. I can't imagine, you know, going there. I've never thought about it. Then in part two, they become tortured because they start to see, oh, actually, I do know something about this, and there's a lot there. So they go through this, this sort of anguish. And by the end of the piece, they transcend that, and they're speaking in the voice of a sage. It's incredible. The witness, the witness voice comes out by the end of the, the, the piece. It's as if they've sort of, they needed to do all, they needed to wash out the, the other stuff first, and then it runs clear at the end. So I do see the therapeutic as, as a, a step to, toward the transcendent, but, but they're not separate. And, yeah. and it, we can, we're experiencing transcendence in these limited envelopes at any you know, given moment. So it's important for me that my work address the guts and blood and bones yeah. of being. Uh, I'm interested in the messy human truth. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to lead people to any sort of transcendent or absolute truth. They get there on their own right. by doing the work uh, right. and by answering their own questions, challenging their, their taboos and their beliefs, and breaking free. And that's the beauty of this work is you, you don't need a therapist. You don't need a guru or a priest to ask yourself questions on, on, on the page. And you do reach a state that feels a lot like freedom sometimes a lot like a lot like transcendence absolutely amazing and this yeah absolutely with you on that i i've noticed for example in relation to what you're saying that people very often they'll say i'm frightened of my voice i'm not going to express it because i've come here to prove that i haven't got a voice and i'm not going to express it and it's too terrifying to imagine as soon as the sound whether it's sorrow you know, or some, all the different colors of, of melancholy or pain or longing uh, and so on. 
are out of the mouth, as soon as we have the capacity to engage them, the witnessing mind, of course, is the very tool that enables us to navigate the befriending of, the integration of energy that is just longing to be used, really, isn't it? It's creative energy that is actually longing to be used. It's not something that we even necessarily want to get rid of. It's, it's something that gets transformed by being seen and heard. Yes, exactly. And it's, it's, very, it's very much the same with writing. Oh, folks will come and say, I have nothing to say, or I can't write, or you know, my mind goes blank. Uh, and then the minute they hear the sound of their own voice on the page when they're writing about something meaningful, that starts to shift because they have become the witness of their own of their own grief, of their own longing, of their own shame, of their own fear, of their own delight, uh, of their own passion. Uh, and, and, and they say, God, there's a lot more in, in me than I knew was there. But that's because we spend our lives skimming the surface and living, uh, living outwardly, impressing the world, like we were saying earlier. We don't take the time to, to inquire, to interrogate uh, ourselves on these really important subjects. So, for example, very often folks will come, uh, a person will come and say, I don't have any passion in my life. Uh, so I, I, I say, is that true? Uh, yes, it's, it's true. Well, why don't you write about not having any passion? They sit down to do that, uh, and they, what of course ends up coming is all of these repressed passions, all these repressed desires. And they say that they're, they're actually teeming with, with, with this stuff, but it was so repressed and so hidden uh, in, in the shadow that they just weren't aware of it. And when that happens, of course, we lose the energy of that desire. Your desire is the source of creativity. You know what Stanley Kunitz said, what makes the engine go desire, desire, desire. That's what makes us go. Uh, If we suppress that or thinking about our desires makes us uncomfortable or even sad because folks feel very trapped sometimes in their lives. So to think about their true desires makes them sad. But until we do that, we can't retrieve that energy, energy and we can't channel it into creative uh, into creative way. So it's important to, to challenge ourselves and go below the surface of the stories we tell uh, so that we can hear our own voice, like you were saying. And, and when we do that, you don't forget it. it it's, it's, a, it's an unmistakable, uh, unique experience, as, as I'm sure it must be for somebody who, who, who sounds for the first time. That must be an extremely you know, disconcerting but, but liberating experience. Oh, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing so often for people, particularly if they say they're feeling afraid uh, or they, they're too frightened to sing. And then you say, well, what does that sound like? And anyway, let's just do it. You, you've come here. Let's just, let's just, just to take a breath and, and, and see what comes out. And very often, I mean, what I'm fascinated by is how the sound that comes out of the mouth, the sound of fear, actually sounds like it's antidote. It's actually courage comes out mm-hmm. of the mouth. You know, and it's even without any words, just completely nonverbal. And they suddenly hear what they thought was fear is actually courage. What they thought was anger was going to be real anger is actually just unused passion, as you were saying mm-hmm. earlier. The, the music of anger is just fantastic. You know, I mean, obviously the Hindu pantheon really comes to our aid or the, you know, the wrathful deities of the Tibetan lineages and so on 
very few of us were given or born into a lineage that has given us kind of archetypal imagery or contexts for these energetic frequencies that that, uh, build up in the body. And so we have to struggle or agonize our way through it in this way. But this is where, of course, poetry and memoir is so valuable. It's just, it's an absolute godsend, isn't it? We're always, we're taught to tamp ourselves down and like you were saying earlier, not be too big. Mm-hmm. There's something called the tall poppy syndrome that I hadn't heard of till I was in Australia last year and a woman said they, she had that they have the tall poppy syndrome down there, which is that you don't want to, in a field of flowers, you don't want to stand up too tall because you'll get your head cut off. So, oh my God! Not too big. I know. So we are taught by people who are afraid of their own passions and their own dimension and their own possibilities to suppress our own, uh, and mm-hmm. so we, we move through our lives a fraction of uh, what could be. Yeah. If we allow the the breath and the scope of our emotions. But most people are not at all comfortable with the ferocity of their emotions, the extremity uh, of emotion. Partly because, as you're saying, we don't have any we don't have any uh, icons or imagery for those to understand them as as uh, aspects of the divine or aspects of uh, of something that that is um, benevolent or beneficial. So we suppress them and and we hide them, especially men. Men just can't deal with the fact that we are also emotional creatures. Right, right. Do you think that's changing much more now? You're noticing a a change there with the men, particularly after this whole issue with Me Too, for example, and so many issues coming up uh, within the church and over the last uh, 10 years or so, especially, you know, really just demonstrating really that the evolution of the feminine presence in the world and the dissolution of the old patriarchal framework. Do you have a sense that men are really coming forward in a whole new way? I am an optimist uh, and I've been blown away by what's happened uh, with the Me Too movement and and what's ended up being the gift of Donald Trump, which is bringing women out of the closet and being this offense that finally sort of burst this this, this bubble, uh, this pain, bubble of pain that's been there for so long. And so I'm grateful to him. I think mm. that it's true. A lot, some men are getting more conscious, but I think the fact that the patriarchy's shadow and the, and the real ugliness of it is finally up front and center is what's motivating this, this more than men's benevolence. I think men right. are trying to catch up and we're trying to figure out how do I own this without taking it on and believing and, and, and hating myself for being a man. And this is something I've worked with a lot because I'm the creative director of V-Men, which is the, the male arm of V-Day. Oh, and it's all about violence against women. And I've spoken to a lot of men and the, the shame that we feel at looking what other men, seeing what other men uh, do is not inspiring. That is not motivating. Right. Uh, and so how do we uh, acknowledge the, the pain that's being done by men in, in the world without vilifying ourselves. And that's a big, a lot of men have that, have that struggle. And a lot of women paint with a very broad brush. You know, I have to say it, you can see that too, the shadow side of what's happening with all the men who are being, you know, taken out of powerful positions. Um, 
Yeah. But then what? Nobody seems to have any idea. You know, what do we do with them then? Uh, and I hear these extreme views that they should never work again. And I and, and, and I wonder, getting back to compassion, where's the compassion? Exactly. You know, where's the compassion? A lot of a lot of men are judged for for things that we haven't done. Absolutely well said. Yeah, it's incredibly challenging, isn't that? But it's almost as if the raw nerve of that that runs through what you're speaking of is itself the healing self. Do you know what I mean? That it's just, it's again, we're back in your circle of writers, people that are daring themselves to begin to look and describe and become the storyteller, not the story. I'm just so deeply touched by the work you're doing and by what you're just bringing into the world. We're probably coming to the end of our dialogue today, but I would love to hear where you feel your work to be going, how it's evolving. There's no question that what you're speaking of is all about compassion, is all about the generation of compassionate understanding for self and for others. What's really juicing you? What's on your agenda and that's really exciting you about the work and where it's going for yourself? I'm I'm about to start a book on Ralph Waldo Emerson, whom I've loved forever. Mm. Emerson's central message is don't waste our time barking against the bad, but chant the beauty of the good. And that's a message I want to put into the world now. It's not enough to complain, feel miserable and bellyache and, and, and point fingers. Uh, it's natural, but it doesn't, it doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, and I, I'm sick of the hopelessness that yeah. I'm picking up all around me. So I want, I want to sort of rescue Ralph Waldo Emerson from the, from the sort of the dust bin of, of sort of literary, you know, icons who nobody thinks about to uh, resurrect his idea of self-reliance because he was writing uh, and, and speaking at, at a time before uh, the civil war when the country was completely torn in half. It was much, much worse than it is now. And he was saying, don't bark, waste your time barking against the bad. Chant the beauty of the good. So that's what I want the book to do. And that's, that's what I'm excited about, about doing. I'm, I'm, there are enough people out there. There are enough really smart and beneficial critics out there. I'd, I'd like to do something else. Oh, Mark. Praise be. I love that. Absolutely love that. And uh, so that will be coming out, obviously, in, in 2019, I presume. No, uh, it will come out in 2020. 2020, okay. Uh, what a, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on that, I tell you. I am so grateful to you for this uh, dialogue together. And obviously that you have such a, a list of books and so on and information about your work and your incredible courses that you're running online and live. And so is the best website for people to go to your website with your name? Yes, markmatusic.com. Folks can find out uh, more than they ever wanted to know about (laughs) (laughs) and the work that I'm doing. (laughs) Well, you are such an inspiration. Big thanks to everyone who is walking this path and to those who are yet to walk it. It's just such a joy. And thank you for your friendship and for this really energizing conversation may there be many many more thank you so much mark is there any final word you would like to say 
Oh, thank you, Chloe. It's just great to talk to you. I love the work you do. I feel like we're doing parallel work of me in writing and you with the voice. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're, we're hoeing different uh, rows in the same field. So yeah. I, I, feel, I feel a deep kinship with you, and I'm just grateful to you for asking me. Well, I, I feel immense gratitude. And, and as you say, I, this real complementarity uh, in our work, it's such a joy to, to really hear more. And I look forward to actually coming and joining one of your groups at some point. Thank um, you, my dear. Any, anytime. <laughs> I'm just going to just offer up a little poem here, which is called The Still Point. One of my students from Wales who came forward with these words, which for me, very much echoes what we've been speaking of today. Words. Words and music in the words. And if not words, then silence. And music in the silence. In the silence, breath. And music in the breath. Between each breath, a space. And music in the space. Within the space, awareness, and music in awareness. In a still point, a calling and a listening. Each word, each breath, each step we choose upon a path. Each cry to know in vain, each yard we crawl or drag, or see a way with feathered eye towards our heart, we write, we paint, we sing a life. So that's by a wonderful human being called Stuart Warner from a book called Echoes of the First Song. And that is gorgeous, gorgeous. Isn't that lovely? Uh, yeah. and it, for me, it has a kind of vibration of Emerson as well. It has that feeling it just reminded me when you were speaking mm. for me it for me it conjures silence yes yeah, yeah. and the the source of all words and all song and all compassionate action bless you and thank you mark so much for your time thanks everyone for listening and please enjoy this and share it with your friends and enjoy your own creative compassionate lives